Welcome to the Pickup. I'm Kevin Walsh, and the second half of the NBA season underway last night, our first slate of games after the All-Star break, and the main game was at the Staples Center, the Lakers hosting the Rockets, and the Lakers got a massive win. A 19-point comeback victory for this team, and they absolutely needed it because they needed to get off to a hot start for this second half. But it is certainly, to me, not surprising. Because when LeBron James says playoff mode is going to be activated, it would look pretty silly for him then to lose the very first game, especially a home game. But LeBron was special as per usual, especially in the fourth quarter. And he also got help. Big shots made by Reggie Bullock, Caldwell Pope. We saw Kyle Kuzma put together a really nice game. And Brandon Ingram had one of his best games as a pro. 20-10, and 10, a fantastic game from Brandon Ingram. But now what comes next for this Lakers team? Because this is a team that starts the second half in the 10th spot. This is a team, depending on where you're betting, they're a coin flip to make the playoffs. Or perhaps even an underdog to make the playoffs. And I think you can see it clear as day from the start of this second half that this will 100% be a playoff team. I can't believe that people were so comfortable even doubting that LeBron James and this Lakers group would make the playoffs. And I'm sure people would say, well, then how did they end up in the 10 spot? The answer to that is really simple. LeBron missed nearly 20 games. What did you think was going to happen when LeBron missed 20 games? This is a team that is well above a 50-win pace. In the games that LeBron has played, they are the second best team in the Western Conference when LeBron is on the court. And that will shine through in this second half. And they absolutely have the chance to get off to a fire start in this second half. They already got a win. When you take their first seven games, the next three that will close out February are on the road to the Pelicans and then on the road to the Grizzlies. They'll then host the Pelicans. That will end February. They will be favored in all of those games, and they should begin the second half on a four-game win streak. They then have a very tough home game against the Milwaukee Bucks, but the two games that follow are on the road to the awful Phoenix Suns and then a game at the Staples Center against the Clippers. So their first seven games, this team should be no worse than 6-1. and one. That is how you make up ground. That is how you make a statement. And I fully expect this Lakers team to do just that. But to put it into perspective where I don't think this Lakers team, the conversation is, can they sneak in? I truly believe the conversation is, how high can they move up after beating the Rockets, who are currently in the five spot? They are four games back of that team. They're both in action Saturday. As I mentioned, the Lakers will travel to New Orleans to play the Pelicans, who, by the way, just came out that they're going to put a minutes cap on not only Anthony Davis, but also Drew Holiday as they prepare for the tank. The Rockets, on the other hand, are going to travel to Golden State. 
and they will be big-time underdogs. And you know the Warriors will be looking to hand them an L after the last time James Harden was there and had maybe the best game in this entire 30-consecutive-point stretch that he is currently on. So after Saturday's games, this Lakers team, a coin flip to make the playoffs to some, underdogs to make the playoffs to some, after Saturday's games, they will be three games back of the fifth seed in the Western Conference. This team is not missing the playoffs. The question for them is how high can this Lakers team climb within the seeding? I do want to talk, though, about the Rockets in this game in terms of playoffs because I do fear for this team. If I were a Rockets fan, I would be worried. I came into the year saying that the Rockets were going to fall back. There was going to be regression. Their over-under, I believe, for the season in terms of a win total was near 60. I certainly thought it was going to be under. But they got off to a much slower start than anyone could have predicted to start this year. Then Chris Paul gets hurt, and James Harden goes on a very, very special run, one that continues now. I think it's 32 straight games scoring 30 or more points. But they haven't been able to find that gear. They haven't been able to even slightly resemble what they were last season, which was on par with the Warriors. They truly were. But they haven't even come close to finding that gear. But what worries me the most about this Houston team is something I talked about when I was going over the run that Harden was on. And it was about grading him on a curve. A lot of people attack Harden's style because they feel like when he gets to the playoffs, he's drained. But I said, what other choice does he have? Like, has James Harden truly just been chucking and there's a better option for this Rockets team? Especially when not only Chris Paul, but Clint Capella was out. Do you really want to run possessions through Austin Rivers or Gerald Green? That doesn't really seem feasible to me. But, he will be gassed come the playoffs. And Chris Paul does not look like Chris Paul of even last year's version. So now, when this team does come around to the postseason, to me, they look like a first-round exit. Because Harden will have a special game. Probably two. But he's probably also going to have three miserable nights at least in terms of efficiency. You're then relying on Chris Paul, who we can't even bank on being healthy by the time the playoffs come around. And even when those games come around, what version of Chris Paul will we get? We have not seen at any point this year Chris Paul resemble what he was last year for a stretch. I worry about this Rockets team if I was a Rockets fan because to me right now, they look like a first-round exit. On the topic of the NBA, let me talk about one of basketball's biggest star uh, stars despite the fact that he's not even in the NBA. Zion Williamson, the megastar freshman at Duke, had the incredibly odd situation of blowing through uh, his Nikes which then led to an MCL sprain in his knee. And when you a player like Zion is so incredibly rare. I mean, 
there was conversation about Zion Williamson shutting it down before there was injury. He has made it clear pretty much since the first game that he is to be the number one overall pick in this coming draft. But once an injury starts, right away, and I tweeted out immediately, the conversation around Zion shutting it down was going to hit a fever pitch. And it absolutely has. And there are two sides to this completely dug in that 100% believe they have the correct answer for what Zion should do. The college basketball diehards, the writers, those who love college basketball, are imploring Zion to continue to play and preaching the value of playing in college basketball, in playing in the tournament. We know, though, that they're kind of skewed. We know because it's not a great look when your biggest star opts to just not return. That kind of hurts when you have to sell this down the road. It does hurt. But also, there are people who believe that Zion 100% should shut it down. He has absolutely nothing to play for because... Duke is merely a launching pad for him to get to the NBA, for him to solidify his draft position, and that has already been accomplished. A fair point. To me, though, there are two main things that aren't really being talked about enough in terms of these argument, uh, in terms of this argument, that actually do favor both sides. And this is why I don't believe this is clear-cut, 100% should play, or clear-cut needs to shut it all down. Something that, to me is in, in favor of Zion should return when healthy and when cleared, is this isn't just about winning a national championship. This is not just about being remembered at Duke. Zion is currently having, arguably, the best college basketball season we have ever seen. He is dominating offensively, defensively, in a way that we've really never seen before. And he's doing it alongside teammates that make up the greatest recruiting class of all time. The top three players in the country, along with the number one point guard, all chose Duke. They came in, a lot of people thought that they were the best team. Some had Kentucky, some had Kansas. And if you remember that first game, Duke throttled Kentucky so bad that we then wondered if Duke would go undefeated. That was the type of statement that this team made. So for Zion, it's not just about being remembered at Duke or being able to say, yo, you know, we got a national championship. It's about leaving an all-time legacy. The way the Fab Five is remembered. The opportunity for this Duke team is there to go down as one of the greatest college basketball teams of all time. Zion and RJ, maybe the best duo college hoops has seen. They are so dominant, and you then pair that with Trey Jones and Cam Reddish and Marquise Bolden, and I know Bolden falls a little bit short of the other four, but that's five five-star recruits that make up this starting lineup. This is a special, special team, and I think it's going to be hard for Zion to just turn that away, especially when we know how close he is to those guys and talks about the relationships that he has with them, not just being teammates, but truly best friends. I think that that is something that is incredibly valuable 
to Zion. But in terms of shutting it down, the argument is simple. Secure your money. Don't risk further injury. You don't want to fall out of the number one slot. And a lot of the college basketball diehards have said there's literally nothing that Zion could do that would prevent him from going number one. I don't know if that's true, but it honestly might be. He's been that dominant, and if you pass on Zion, you're pretty much asking to be fired. But I will say this. The specimen that is Zion Williamson. I mean, we're talking about a guy that when he enters the NBA next year, he will be the second heaviest player in the league. The only heavier player is Boban. Boban's like 7'3". Zion is 6'8". It is ridiculous the size, the speed, and the strength that Zion Williamson possesses. But it is a bit concerning how that weight will grow on him, how his body will continue to transform. It's not something we've ever seen before. All of that weight and power on the knees repeatedly again and again and again when he soars up for these incredible dunks is something that could be a bit of a concern. So when I see Zion have a knee injury, I'm not worried right now short term what happens if he plays in the tournament. I more so think about the longevity of Zion's career. He does not only like this for Zion, the goal of going number one at this point, like you've accomplished that. You're gonna go one. That to me is small. Zion, if health permits, looks like he truly can be an all-time great. And I know that's a lot of praise to put on an 18-year-old, but he has been so special and he deserves that type of praise. And really, the only thing that could stop it is potential injury. So when you come across a situation like this where you don't need to play at Duke another game and you can sit out and preserve yourself, not just for the draft, not just for a combine or special workouts, but just for the longevity of your career, I believe that that is something that should be taken into account. I don't believe it's necessary for me to sit here and tell you Zion must play or Zion must sit. I don't feel comfortable doing that. That's completely 100% Zion's decision. I think it's more important for me to say I think there is a really, really good argument for either decision that Zion makes. Let me transition to football now where we're getting ready for the offseason and maybe the two biggest names on the market are Steelers or to be former Steelers with Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell. And I want to start with Antonio Brown here because this situation has continuously evolved almost daily and every single new development has hurt the Steelers' position. We know in the NFL owners are always concerned about a player's off-field stuff. The tr potential trouble that a player could cause in a locker room is constantly talked about. And right or wrong, you know that that is going to drop Antonio Brown's value immediately. But one of the things that I believed would really help Antonio Brown keep a lot of his value was his contract. While it's very expensive for the Steelers to move on from him, 
the team that would acquire him would only take on the base salary. So you would be getting Antonio Brown on pretty much a three-year, $36 million deal. His cap hit, if he were to remain on the Steelers, is the highest of any receiver in football. But if you're only paying Antonio Brown his base salary for 2019, he doesn't even crack the top 15. So getting what is undeniably, undeniably, one of the four best receivers in football, and a guy that for a lot of people is still the best receiver in football, at a price where he's not even top 15 in cap hit? I mean, that has to cancel out a lot of the off-field stuff. But now, we have Antonio Brown telling teams, if you're telling fans, I guess, if your team has that guaranteed money, tell them to come talk to me. So if now the team trading for Antonio Brown has to renegotiate a deal, well, you've lost a lot of leverage if you're Pittsburgh. A lot of leverage. Because not only do teams now not want to have to pay him more, but I don't really think they're interested in going into negotiations with Antonio Brown, a.k.a., according to him, Mr. Big Chest, which is a preposterous name. I don't think that's something that these teams are going to want to do. The other development that has absolutely knocked the Steelers in terms of a position of arguing, a position of negotiating, is Odell Beckham might be on the market. There is no debate here. Odell, comfortably more valuable than Antonio Brown. We could debate who's the better receiver, but there's a four-year age difference. That makes it easy. Odell Beckham is the more valuable wide receiver. Every team is more likely to spend more for Odell Beckham than they are for Antonio Brown. The reality is, though, with the way Antonio Brown's contract works out, because he has a roster bonus that comes, I believe it's mid-March, early March, we know that the Steelers are going to want to move him before that. Odell probably wouldn't be moved till draft day, maybe a little bit before the draft, and if teams believe that might be possible, then they're going to sit and they're going to wait, and they're not going to jump in the Antonio Brown race just yet. They're going to wait for Odell Beckham to become available. So my advice to the Steelers as this situation continues to roll, get rid of AB now, as soon as possible, because all your waiting is doing is losing you leverage because Antonio Brown at every turn has taken this situation into his own hands and has cost the Steelers leverage. I do want to talk about probably my favorite landing spot for Antonio Brown. I wish I recorded this a bit sooner because now there's a lot of people talking about this potential landing spot, but I guess great minds think alike, depending on, what, I guess, how you would value those people's opinions. At least you can take mine for what it's worth. I do think that the Green Bay Packers are an excellent fit for Antonio Brown. This is a team that doesn't love the free agency market, but they do like proven players, and that's exactly what Antonio Brown would be for the Green Bay Packers. And we know they have Devontae Adams, but we saw it last year. Outside of that, a lot to be desired. We know that this is a team that is readying to draft a wide receiver probably in the first round with one of the two first-round picks they have, with 12 and with 30. So here's the middle ground that I think these teams could find. The Steelers have the 20th pick in this draft. The Packers have the 12th. I don't know if Antonio Brown is worth the 12th pick straight up. At least, I mean, he's probably worth it, but I don't know if the Steelers could command that. 
Now, a swap of 20 to 12, though, I think the Steelers might want to try to get more than just moving up eight draft slots. But I think the middle ground is the 12 to 20 swap between the Packers and the Steelers, and then throwing in that 30 overall pick, that first round draft choice that the Packers got from the Steelers. The Steelers are left with a higher draft slot by eight spots in order to secure one of the premier guys that can help them with their defense, as well as an additional, an, an, another first round pick. That's super, super valuable for that team. I think that's an offer that trumps what, say, the 49ers, a team that AB's been connected to a lot throughout this process, would put on the table because, to me, there's no way they're going to offer the second overall pick for Antonio Brown. And their 2020 first-round pick, while that's valuable, it takes two knocks. One, I don't know where that's going to land. I think that if this team did get Antonio Brown, I would bet on them making the postseason. So I don't know how much the Steelers would value that asset. But the other thing for the Steelers, this isn't a team that's looking to rebuild or reset or retool. They want to go back to the playoffs next year after missing this year. This is a team that's going to be determined. So and two right now assets moving up eight spots in the 2019 draft and adding another first-round pick in the 2019 draft, I think comfortably trumps the 2020 first-round pick that the Niners could be offering. So I think that works wonderfully for the Steelers. And for the Packers, look, if you're going to use one of your first-round picks on a receiver, you're not going to get anybody that helps you more than Antonio Brown. Not DK Metcalf, not Riley Ridley, not A.J. Brown. No one is going to help you more than Antonio Brown would right away. I mean, that's just a fact. And you then still have a first-round pick at 20 that kind of meets in the middle of where your current two picks are with 12 and with 30. I think this works really, really well for both teams, and it's a deal I would like to be see, uh, I would like to see get done. Quickly, though, on, on Le'Veon Bell, because we know now that he's 100% going to be a free agent. Steelers won't tag him. He's going to find a new spot. And I think you're going to see a lot of people critique whichever team hands out Le'Veon Bell, the contract that he will demand. My expectations are the highest paid, or at least the most guaranteed money a running back has ever received, is what uh, Le'Veon Bell will get from the team that signs him. And a lot of the conversation in the NFL is about the value of the running back position. I myself still believe, despite seeing how fantastic Saquon Barkley is, that I don't know if the Giants made the right choice because there's nothing more valuable than the quarterback. But the Jets have their quarterback in Sam Darnold, the one that the Giants passed on. And they now have the most valuable thing that you could have in sports, which is a quarterback on a rookie contract who can produce. And I believe that Sam Darnold can produce. So bringing on Le'Veon Bell makes a ton of sense because not only is he a fantastic runner, but he's also a tremendous pass catcher. And yes, there are ways to get production out of the running back position in a cheap way. Like Yes, that happens, but it's a lot easier when you have a really talented running back. The Patriots had Sony Michelle. That's a number. That's a first round pick. 
at the running back position. Todd Gurley is the lifeblood of the Rams' offense, the one of the best offenses in football. He was also a first-round pick and is currently the, the most expensive running back in the history of football. So, yeah, there are ways to manufacture touches. There, there are ways to get running back production if your scheme is brilliant. But it's a lot easier when you have a megastar running back like a Le'Veon Bell. And for the Jets, they do have that luxury. With the second most cap space and a quarterback on a rookie deal, I think that landing spot makes a ton of sense. And I know for sure on this podcast, I will not be slandering them for that move. I will be applauding them because I think that move makes a ton of sense. Allow me to close talking baseball because this is an opportunity that doesn't come around a ton, but one of the best players in the entire sport signed a $300 million contract. And that's as good a reason as any to talk baseball. Manny Machado, $300 million, 10-year, $300 million deal with the Padres. And if I told you one of the best players in the sport signed a $300 million deal, a lot of people seem to focus on the fact that it's a $300 million deal, and they're not really acknowledging that Manny Machado was one of the best players in baseball. See, I think baseball has kind of taken a turn that is a little bit too drastic. I remember when baseball contracts were moving up and up and up, and it led Bryce Harper to say, why couldn't I land a $500 million contract? I remember the reaction to that comment at the time, which was, man, that's a lot of money, but he'll probably get close to it, like $400 million at least, right? Like, that was the reaction. It's swung so much that we're now talking $200 less million, and teams aren't willing to go to that mark. And that, to me, is a massive mistake. Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, Manny now signed and Bryce still out there, we are talking about two of the absolute best players in baseball available at the age of 26 years old. So 10-year deals for those two guys will have now bought you the entirety of their prime bookend start to finish Machado and Bryce about to enter the primes of their careers and when that contract is up they will probably be leaving the primes of their careers we're talking about 10-year deals what's the worst case scenario in terms of what Manny Machado brings to San Diego eight great years and maybe two down years this isn't paying Miguel Cabrera, $30 million at the age of 40. This isn't paying Albert Pujols $30 million at the age of 40. This isn't paying Robinson Cano $30 million at the age of 40. This is paying Bryce Harper $30, probably $30 plus million dollars at the age of 35, paying Manny Machado $30 million at the age of 36. That's a good deal. 
This has swung too far in the other direction that teams are now missing out. In Really, it's crazy because it's two of them, but it's once-in-a-lifetime stuff. Like, everybody agrees Mike Trout's the best player in all of baseball. To me, a tier of his own. When he becomes available, he'll be 29. He's going to get a 10-year deal. He might even get $400 million. You will end up paying Mike Trout 30 to $40 million at the age of 39. There's a, a real possibility. It's probably likely that at 39, Mike Trout is not worth 30 to $40 million. It might even be with at the age of 37, he's not worth that. And we're talking about the best player in the game. But this is why Machado and Harper are different. Because you're not worrying about paying them at, third, at age 38, 39, 40. They are free agents now at the age of 26. So 10-year deals are locking you into their prime. For me... $300 million for Manny Machado for 10 years, that's a steal. When Bryce Harper signs from anywhere between 320 and 350 I assume that's what it will be, that's going to be a steal. I truly believe 10-year, $400 million contracts for those two would have been 100% justifiable, not only because of their talent, but because of the years you are paying them and the flexibility that you have in baseball. I'm not worried about paying Bryce Harper $40 million every single year between age 26 to 36. But I also know in baseball, I have time to make that work. Like if I'm, say, a Yankees trying to contend for a World Series now, well, I know I have the chance to do that with Bryce Harper right now and for years to come. He fits in wonderfully with a young core. Same could have been said for Manny Machado had the Yankees made that move. Machado now with the Padres, right? The Padres aren't expected to win their division. They're not expected to make the playoffs. They're not even expected to go 500. But it can still work with the Padres' timeline because they have the best farm system in baseball and they can wait two or even three years for these guys to develop because when that comes around, they, they won't even be halfway into the Machado contract. Every single team in baseball should have been in on these guys for at the minimum... 10-year, $300 million deals. They give you the chance to compete right away. They give you the chance to compete for the future. And you are at worst, at worst, going to overpay for two seasons. Maybe the last two years of the deal. That's the absolute worst case scenario. And I don't even think that's going to happen. You are literally signing up to get two top 10 guys in this league for the entirety of their prime. The Padres got a steal. Whoever signs Bryce Harper is going to get a steal. Baseball has swung too far in the other 
direction. I agree. A $500 million contract is a little wild. We are talking $200 less million. And the Nationals, who could compete for a World Series if they sign him, worried. The White Sox, who are looking to be relevant if they signed him, worried. The Yankees, who would be heavy World Series favorites if they signed either Bryce Harper or Manny Machado, worried. It's a shame on those teams. But kudos to the Padres for making that move. And future kudos goes out to whoever gives Bryce Harper his record-breaking contract. Because you are getting your money's worth. That will do it here for this episode on The Pickup. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at the Kevin Walsh. Thank you guys so much for the support. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, all of that wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for stopping by, and I'll see you guys next time.